0: Chapter Two of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, Marquette, Michigan, July, two thousand ten. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Two Going to the South. My country, shall thy honored name be as a byword through the world? Rouse, for as if to blast thy fame, this keen reproach is at thee hurled the banner that above the waves is floating o'er three million slaves dick walker the slave speculator who had purchased cur and althesia put them in prison until his gang was made up and then with his forty slaves started for the new orleans market as many of the slaves had been brought up in richmond and had relations residing there the slave trader determined to leave the city early in the morning so as not to witness any of those scenes so common where slaves are separated from their relatives and friends when about departing for the southern market. This plan was successful, for not even Clotel, who had been every day at the prison to see her mother and sister, knew of their departure. A march of eight days through the interior of the state, and they arrived on the banks of the Ohio River, where they were all put on board a steamer, and then speedily sailed for the place of their destination. Walker had already advertised in the New Orleans paper that he would be there at a stated time with a prime lot of able-bodied slaves ready for field service, together with a few extra ones between the ages of fifteen and twenty-five. But, like most who make a business of buying and selling slaves for gain, he often bought some who were far advanced in years, and would always try to sell them for five or ten years younger than they actually were. Few persons can arrive at anything like the age of a negro, by mere observation, unless they are well acquainted with the race. Therefore the slave-trader very frequently carried out this deception with perfect impunity. After the steamer had left the wharf, and was fairly on the bosom of the father of waters, Walker called his servant Pompey to him, and instructed him as to getting the negroes ready for market." Amongst the forty negroes were several whose appearance indicated that they had seen some years and had gone through some services their gray hair and whiskers at once pronounced them to be above the ages set down in the trader's advertisement Pompey had long been with the trader and knew his business and if he did not take delight in discharging his duty he did it with a degree of alacrity so that he might receive the approbation of his master Pomp as Walker usually called him was of real negro blood, and would often say, when alluding to himself, "'Dis nigger is no counterfeit. He is de genuine article.'" Pompey was of low stature, round face, and, like most of his race, had a set of teeth which, for whiteness and beauty, could not be surpassed. His eyes large, lips thick, and hair short and woolly. Pompey had been with Walker so long, and had seen so much of the buying and selling of slaves, that he appeared perfectly indifferent to the heart-rending scenes which daily occurred in his presence. It was on the second day of the steamer's voyage that Pompey selected five of the old slaves, took them in a room by themselves, and commenced preparing them for the market. "'Well,' said Pompey, addressing himself to the company, "'I is the gentleman that is to get you ready, so that you will bring Marser a good price in the Orleans market. How old is you?' Addressing himself to a man who, from appearance, was not less than forty, "If I live to see next corn planting time, I will either be forty-five or fifty-five. I don't know which." "Dat may be," replied Pompey. "But now you is only thirty years old. Dat is what Marser says you is to be." "I know I is more than dat," responded the man. "I knows nothing about dat," said Pompey. "'But when you get in de market, and anybody asks you how old you is, "'and you tell em forty-five, "'Marcer will tie you up and give you de whip like smoke. "'But if you tell them that you is only thirty, den he won't.' "'Well, then, I guess I will only be thirty when they ask me,' replied the chattel. "'What's your name?' inquired Pompey. "'Jeems,' answered the man. "'Oh, Uncle Jim, is it?' "'Yes.' "'Then you must have off dem dare whiskers of yours.' "'and when you get to Orleans, you must grease dat face and make it look shiny.' This was all said by Pompey in a manner which clearly showed that he knew what he was about. "'How old is you?' asked Pompey, of a tall, strong-looking man. "'I was twenty-nine last potato-digging time,' said the man. "'What's your name?' "'My name is Tobias, but they call me Toby.' "'Well, Toby, or Mr. Tobias, if dat will suit you better, You is now twenty-three years old, and no more. Does you hear dat?' "'Yes,' responded Toby. Pompey gave each to understand how old he was to be when asked by persons who wished to purchase, and then reported to his master that the old boys were all right. At eight o'clock on the evening of the third day, the lights of another steamer were seen in the distance, and apparently coming up very fast. This was a signal for a general commotion on the patriot, and everything indicated that a steamboat race was at hand. Nothing can exceed the excitement attendant upon a steamboat race on the Mississippi River. By the time the boats had reached Memphis, they were side by side, and each exerting itself to keep the ascendancy in point of speed. The night was clear, the moon shining brightly, and the boats so near to each other that the passengers were calling out from one boat to the other. On board the Patriot the firemen were using oil, lard, butter, and even bacon, with the wood, for the purpose of raising the steam to its highest pitch. The blaze mingled with the black smoke showed plainly that the other boat was burning more than wood. The two boats soon locked, so that the hands of the boats were passing from vessel to vessel, and the wildest excitement prevailed throughout amongst both passengers and crew, At this moment the engineer of the Patriot was seen to fasten down the safety valve so that no steam should escape. This was, indeed, a dangerous resort. A few of the boat-hands who saw what had taken place left the end of the boat for more secure quarters. The Patriot stopped to take in passengers, and still no steam was permitted to escape. At the starting of the boat cold water was forced into the boilers by the machinery, and, as might have been expected, one of the boilers immediately exploded. One dense fog of steam filled every part of the vessel, while shrieks, groans, and cries were heard on every hand. The saloons and cabins soon had the appearance of a hospital. By this time the boat had landed, and the Columbia, the other boat, had come alongside to render assistance to the disabled steamer. The killed and scalded, nineteen in number, were soon on shore, and the patriot taken in tow by the Columbia was soon again on its way. It was now twelve o'clock at night, and instead of the passengers being asleep, the majority were ambling in the saloons. Thousands of dollars change hands during a passage from Louisville or St. Louis to New Orleans on a Mississippi steamer, and many men and even ladies are completely ruined. "'Go call my boy, steward,' said Mr. Smith, as he took his cards one by one from the table. In a few moments, a fine-looking, bright-eyed mulatto boy, apparently about fifteen years of age, was standing by his master's side at the table. "'I will see you, and five hundred dollars better,' said Smith, as his servant Jerry approached the table. "'What price do you want to set on that boy?' asked Johnson, as he took a roll of bills from his pocket. "'He will bring a thousand dollars any day in the New Orleans market,' replied Smith. "'Then you bet the whole of the boy, do you?' "'Yes.' "'I call you, then,' said Johnson, at the same time spreading his cards out upon the table. "'You have beat me,' said Smith, as soon as he saw the cards. Jerry, who was standing on top of the table, with the bank-notes and silver dollars round his feet, was now ordered to descend from the table. "'You will not forget that you belong to me,' said Johnson, as the young slave was stepping from the table to a chair. "'No, sir,' replied the chattel. "'Now go back to your bed, and be up in time to-morrow morning to brush my clothes and clean my boots, do you hear?' "'Yes, sir,' responded Jerry, as he wiped the tears from his eyes. Smith took from his pocket the bill of sale and handed it to Johnson, at the same time saying, "'I claim the right of redeeming that boy, Mr. Johnson. My father gave him to me when I came of age, and I promised not to part with him.' "'Most certainly, sir. The boy shall be yours, whenever you hand me over a cool thousand.' replied Johnson. The next morning, as the passengers were assembling in the breakfast saloons, and upon the guards of the vessel, and the servants were seen running about, waiting upon or looking for their masters, poor Jerry was entering his new master's stateroom with his boots. "'Who do you belong to?' said a gentleman to an old black man, who came along leading a fine dog that he had been feeding. "'When I went to sleep last night, I belonged to Governor Lucas,' but I understand that he has been gambling all night, so I don't know who owns me this morning. Such is the uncertainty of a slave's position. He goes to bed at night, the property of the man with whom he has lived for years, and gets up in the morning, the slave of someone whom he has never seen before. To behold five or six tables in a steamboat's cabin, with half a dozen men playing at cards, and money, pistols, bowie-knives, all in confusion on the tables, is what may be seen at almost any time on the Mississippi River. On the fourth day, while at Natchez, taking in freight and passengers, Walker, who had been on shore to see some of his old customers, returned, accompanied by a tall, thin-faced man, dressed in black, with a white neck-cloth, which immediately proclaimed him to be a clergyman. "'I want a good trusty woman for house-service,' said the stranger, as they entered the cabin where Walker's slaves were kept. "'Here she is, and no mistake,' replied the trader. "'Stand up, cur, my gal.' "'Here's a gentleman who wishes to see if you will suit him.' Eltheza clung at her mother's side, as the latter rose from her seat. "'She is a rare cook, a good washer, and will suit you to a tea, I am sure.' "'If you buy me, I hope you will buy my daughter, too,' said the woman, in rather an excited manner. "'I only want one for my own use, and would not need another,' said the man in black, as he and the trader left the room. Walker and the parson went into the saloon, talked over the matter, the bill of sale was made out, the money paid over, and the clergyman left, with the understanding that the woman should be delivered to him at his house. It seemed as if poor Altheza would have wept herself to death for the first two days after her mother had been torn from her side by the hand of the ruthless trafficker in human flesh. On the arrival of the boat at Baton Rouge, an additional number of passengers were taken on board and amongst them several persons who had been attending the races. Gambling and drinking were now the order of the day. Just as the ladies and gentlemen were assembling at the supper-table, the report of a pistol was heard in the direction of the social hall, which caused great uneasiness to the ladies, and took the gentlemen to that part of the cabin. However, nothing serious had occurred. A man at one of the tables where they were gambling had been seen attempting to conceal a card in his sleeve, and one of the party seized his pistol and fired. But fortunately the barrel of the pistol was knocked up, just as it was about to be discharged, and the ball passed through the upper deck instead of the man's head as intended. Order was soon restored. All went on well the remainder of the night and the next day. At ten o'clock the boat arrived at New Orleans, and the passengers went to the hotels and the slaves to the market. Our eyes are yet on Africa's shores her thousand wrongs we still deplore. We see the grim slave-trader there, we hear his fettered victim's prayer, and hasten to the sufferer's aid, forgetful of our own slave-trade. The ocean pirate's fiend-like form shall sink beneath the vengeance storm, his heart of steel shall quake before the battle din and havoc roar. The knave shall die, the law hath said, while it protects our own slave trade. What earthly eye presumes to scan the wily proteus heart of man? What potent hand will e'er unroll the mantled treachery of his soul? O, oh, where is he who hath surveyed the horrors of our own slave trade? There is an eye that wakes in light, there is a hand of peerless might, which soon or late shall yet assail and rend dissimulation's veil which will unfold the masquerade which justifies our own slave trade. End of chapter 2